Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. He'd been to places that most of us, thank God, have never been to, been forced to go to or had to go to um, in terms of his experiences of incarceration and abuse and um, and solitary confinement's a form of abuse, of course. Imagine this scenario. So you've been in prison. You've been in solitary confinement for so long that you end up requesting your own execution. The Fear of 13 is an incredible tale of Nick Yaris. It's a film, it's on Netflix, and we're lucky to be joined by one of the producers, Christopher Riley, who is an Emmy and BAFTA-nominated producer. And I know I'm biased, but this is genuinely a fascinating conversation. I don't think we've addressed anything like this. So you're listening to Stop and Search on Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST in association with Leap UK. Here we go. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? Thank you so much for joining us. And as I said, we're talking about The Fear of 13, which is a book and a film of Nick Yaris. I saw the film a few years ago at a press screening. We talk about this in the episode and it was it just blew me away. It's like nothing I'd seen before. And everybody that I recommended it to has come away and said the same thing. It was, it's just so unique. And Christopher Riley, one of the producers, when we was having this conversation in, in Waterstones, Tottenham Court Road, it was difficult not to give away spoilers, which is a bizarre concept. But if you go and watch the film, you'll, you'll see why. So what happens in solitary confinement? What, what changes and why did Nick Yaris request his own execution? Yeah, let's get into this. This is The Fear of 13. Chris Riley is in Waterstones with me right now. Is this the first time you've actually been to this Waterstones? Yeah, we're here on the Tottenham Court Road where I've been working, I suppose, for about the last year and a bit now. And I've walked past this bookstore for quite some time and I've never actually been in. So it's nice to have that opportunity to come and join you here. I can't thank you enough for joining us because I saw the film that we're going to talk about, The Fear of 13, uh, a good couple of years ago now at some press or pre-screening. And I was just saying to you that on the ride home, it's probably one of the f- only films that I've watched that changed a part of me as I, the more I thought about it. Because it's not your average film, is it? It's, it is quite different as a documentary. Yes. I mean, I suppose um, the, th- the thing is when you set out to kind of make a film, 
um, you often don't know where the journey is going to lead you. And uh, so maybe I should sort of step back a bit from this and talk a bit about how I came across Nick and the story and what led to the, the film. So I was sitting at home, uh, gosh, about 10 years ago now, I suppose, um, listening to the radio one morning, having breakfast, and there was a... Um, uh, a live show that was presented by Michael Burke, actually, called The Choice, which is sometimes still on Radio 4. Um, and it came on, and uh, Michael was talking to Nick Yaris, and I'd never heard of Nick Yaris at that point. And, um, and he just guided Nick through this sort of story of his life, which had been, you know, a struggle through from um, a difficult childhood through to... A, a more troubled adulthood where things went really badly wrong for him and he ended up being, you know, arrested and um, put in prison and then ultimately through his own stupidity he ended up on death row And um, but for, for a crime he hadn't committed and so uh, this, fil- this, this radio show unfolds and he tells this really succinct, powerful story about his life lasts just about 30 minutes and it's word perfect nick is absolutely word perfect on it and i couldn't quite believe it was live you know it was it felt like it was beautifully rehearsed and perfectly kind of edited but it wasn't it was just a live single one-off interview chat about his life and at the end of it you just came away thinking my god that is the most amazing film i've just heard the script for i just thought i it's got to be it's got it's got to be a film it really pulled me in However, you know, life gets on with other things and throws other stuff at you. And so, you know, a few weeks went by and I just thought, I bet, like, the guy's had thousands of phone calls and he's got loads of approaches from other documentary makers, other filmmakers, you know. So I figured the moment had slipped away. And then and then a few weeks after that, I was invited to a talk that he was giving um, at a church up in central London, um, that was spon- a talk that was sponsored by Reprieve, you know, the um, uh, the charity that campaigns um, for uh, pr- prisoners on on death row, and um, he uh, gave a similar powerful presentation at this at this event. And I sat there at the back listening to him, really blown away. I mean, he had the audience in the palm of his hand throughout this um, this whole presentation he did. And the people were laughing and crying. And I mean, he just had a magnetism with the audience. It was really amazing. Just, I, I had the same shivers up my spine as I'd had listening to him on the radio. So at the end, I went up to him and got chatting. And, and he said, oh, what, you know, what do you do? And I said, oh, well, I sometimes make films. I've, in fact, I just finished a, f- a film um, also with David Sington, who's the director of Fear of 13, um, called In the Shadow of the Moon. And it was just playing at Sundance at the time. And... Um, uh, Sundance Film Festival and so I said oh you know we've just done this project and Nick said oh well we should talk and I said what why surely you're already making like at least one movie after that amazing radio show and he said well I got a lot of phone calls he said but I I didn't like any of the people I turned them down I wasn't it wasn't for me it wasn't the right project so we got talking and um Right then, I mean, in my head, the the plot for the film was the th- thing I'd heard on the radio, which was this story pretty much chronologically told, unfolded. And in my head, I also sort of thought, well, this is a kind of probably quite a conventional film and there's other characters that he talks about that we go and interview, you know, in a sort of traditional way. Um, but anyhow, you know, time passed and we tried to get 
initially Channel 4 actually interested in funding it and um, uh, and in fact they were very negative at the time about it it was um, a commissioner called Simon Dixon at the time who's gone on to great things but you know Simon was very negative about about the idea um, in fact if you don't mind me swearing I remember he said to me I don't want any more fucked up Americans on my channel I mean that was Channel 4's you know, formal re- reply to us when we pitched this story to them I was pretty angry but anyhow you know they just didn't get it so we um, bootstrapped this production ourselves and we um, started sort of funding it um, Docs Productions who I took the idea to bankrolled it in those early days and we did all our due diligence on it checked his facts and his story and then eventually we were ready to sit down with him and film this interview and right then we also all of us I think thought it was going to be a pretty conventional film right then but um, as that morning unfolded, it was in Ealing Studios, we built this set that we were going to film him against. Um, just a simple setup in a chair, talking to camera, just to David, who was sitting just below the lens. And within minutes, you kind of knew that actually this film didn't need anyone else. It was just the most extraordinary performance. It was him telling us the story very emotional it was a very cathartic few days we spent with him recording there were a lot of tears he cried a lot we cried a lot it was very very overwhelming really um and at the end of it you just thought that that's the film it's a monologue you know it's it's just him talking to us that's enough and the hard bit then is you've got this really simple storyline and really simple uh format and him how do you persuade someone to fund that? You know, because people are looking for gimmicks and ideas and clever formats and twists and visual kind of stuff that people have never seen before. That's the usual sort of requests you get. And here was this guy sitting in a chair talking, and that for us that was like, this is it, you know. So then this sort of grueling path of like, how do we raise the money to sort of... Because it's still expensive to do that kind of thing and we would still need to kind of illustrate things. There was very little archive, so there's not much to cut into his story to kind of illustrate it. And it would be a very bold thing just to have him in a chair with nothing else. So we still needed money. So we started kind of approaching other broadcasters and um, we got other, other executive producers on board then to try and champion the idea. But everybody had the same reaction to him, which wasn't the one I'd had. Um, And that was that he was so polished and so precise in his language, no one believed him. And that was a dilemma for us that plagued the project for years because wherever we got in front of people and showed them this, whether it was HBO or A&E in the States or um, whoever, you know, they all said, is he for real? You know, and for me, of course he was bloody for real. This guy had lived through this stuff he'd been in solitary confinement for um you know a big chunk of his life and 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 he told himself stories that's how he'd stayed sane and so these stories were very polished because he told them to himself repeatedly and the film was about how we all tell stories in a sense to make sense of life really and anyway it became really hard to fund it um so we we kind of parked it for a while and thought hard about how we could kind of fund it ourselves maybe or find another way of doing it and in the end with the film's editor Robert Sternberg who works at Imperial College um, 
uh, I, in my spare time with Robert, we, we ended up cutting the film ourselves for two years, just doing it in evenings and at weekends to try and get it in a state from 20 hours of interview, something like that, that we'd, we got with Nick down to a watchable sort of 100 minutes, you know. And that cut just had black holes in it. So it was Nick talking, black hole, Nick talking, black, no other imagery. And we took that cut, and this was the breakthrough, we took that cut to the Sheffield Documentary Festival, screened it there as a work-in-progress film, and incredibly, you know, people came out of that screening. It was very claustrophobic. It was just Nick and a chair and black blackness. You know, the, the, the picture would go to black repeatedly and you'd be in darkness just hearing him talk. And people were electrified by it. It was a quite a revelatory moment for me as a filmmaker because, in a sense, we all talked after it. We said, well, maybe that's enough. Maybe that is our film, but that would be very... Very avant-garde. You'd be know. quite brave to do that. Very brave, not necessarily commercial. You know, the point was, you make a film for people to watch it, and we didn't want to put barriers up. We wanted it, you know, to be powerful, but in a conventional-ish way, so an audience would come to it. If it was just Nick and black holes, it would have, the, you know, the people reviewing it would have highlighted that, and it might have put an audience off. So it wasn't our ideal to do that. But it really touched people. And I'm pleased to say in the audience was someone from Storyville, from the BBC, who came up afterwards and said, look, you know, how can we help you get this finished? So they came on board. And with their strength, we got another investor in the States to back us and were able to go out and then shoot the dramatic kind of reconstructions that sort of now accompany Nick's sort of telling of this powerful story. Um, But... To answer your first question, which was about, you know, how, how did the film kind of come to be and how did, how did it appear the way it was, we, it sort of organically found its place and its way of being told. And Nick, I think when you turn over a camera and you start shooting, it's only then that you really know what the film's going to be, perhaps. And then you get in the edit and it, the film sometimes morphs into something else again there. But to try and say to someone, this is what the film is, this is how it's going to feel before you've made it, is always very hard. So it evolved, I suppose, is, is one way of putting it, as, as we went on a journey together to make it. You, you hit upon something there, because I've been saying to everybody I know to watch this film, now it's on Netflix, it's so accessible. And a good friend of mine, Kerry, he, um, I recommended it to him, and he watched it that night. And his exact words were, I didn't know whether to hug him or punch him. And that, to me, almost sums it up because, as you said, there is an absolute sheen to the way that Nick delivers this. Nick Yaris, the the protagonist of the film, he is so spot on, paused, delivered perfectly. And the journey that I took within this film is not knowing anything about it to start with and the emotions I had there of this blank slate compared to what I finished with and I've been wondering how to talk about this in a public way because I don't want to give anything away. You know, I don't want to give spoiler alert. But the, the main premise is that he requested his own execution in the end. Um, how, I guess the question is, is how did you tell that story, someone that requested their own execution, without giving anything away in the first part of the film? Because this comes quite late on, uh, and, I, and if you do any research on Nick Yarish, you'll know that he did request his own execution. And yet you managed to deliver that so perfectly and kept it as almost a cliffhanger. Was that deliberate? 
Oh yes, it's certainly deliberate. I mean, I think the thing about this film, it's the same, it was the case for a lot of films, but it was particularly the case um, for this one in, when I compare it to others I've made, is that you could cut this film in a thousand different ways. Um, and it's funny to hear that, really, because... You know, st- all stories have a chronology, so, you know, you can arrange the story blocks so it happens as it happened in time, with time passing, so from his childhood through to today. You know, that is a uh, one way of telling Nick's story. And in fact, um, in those two years that Robert and I spent editing the film, that was our default position. We started with a chronological telling of the story, and those, that first cut of the film that we did that I took back to David Singleton, the director, and showed him and said, look, if you were unsure at any point whether Nick could carry this story on his own, then, you know, trust me that this cut of it shows that he can, he really can. That was the exercise in editing it like that was to prove to ourselves that this was a film, a monologue, Nick could do it on his own. But that was chronological. That that started essentially as... Uh, with with the end of the film as we have it today, at the beginning, so it began with I won't say because of the spoiler alert thing, or the spo- because it's a spoiler I won't say it now. But um, it began with this 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 thing that happened at the beginning of his life, um, and then went forward from that. Now, you could say, well, that's a cliffhanger, and why would you possibly put that at the beginning? But but it, in a way, it did work, and it di- it was a different kind of film there. But it was a film that created this thing in Nick's life at the very beginning that you then really empathised with him over. And from that point on, I always felt with that chronological cut that the the film... I mean, you just felt angry on his behalf. You sympathised with him immediately and then felt angry. i tell you what it made me feel like. I don't know if you've ever seen the film Biko, uh, Richard Attenborough's film about Steve Biko, um, uh, one of the uh, anti-apartheid campaigners from South Africa. And with with Biko, I watched it just as um, in my early twenties, I think, when it first came out in the eighties. And um, you just feel angry the whole time at what the government's doing um, to persecute most of its population. And that's how I felt in that chronological telling of Nick's story. I, you know, you you, you place him there in the film with all his vulnerabilities and and damage that that that's happened to him. And then from that point on, when anybody does anything. You're furious at them because, you know, he's a vulnerable person and look what they've done. So I I had some um, pleasure in that that chronological story telling of the story actually, which I I thought didn't not work. It was a it was another way of doing it. But anyway, for the next two years, we then rearranged all those story blocks repeatedly, and we tried test screenings with people and tried to work out a cleverer way of telling it so it wasn't chronological, that it held things back, that it, qu- that it made you question um, whether he was telling you the truth. That's exactly it. Yeah. And actually, that was a far cleverer construction that David came up with in the end, working with Robert again. And so um, it's a better film for that, but that was not accidental. It was a long four-year process to make it that good. And, and that is it. That's the fact that I felt I betrayed myself by being judgmental to start with um, because you see someone that's in, that looks like a prison environment telling his prison story and by the end of it, your views are completely turned on their head because of certain events that happened. And that, as a, you know, as in quotation marks, the journey that I went on within the film, that is why I connected it to it so much because it 
it made me question myself and my own beliefs and my own judgmental side of things um was that remotely conscious or is that something that because it wasn't just me that felt that there was i remember in the q a that happened after the screen that it was in because it was quite an intimate screening and there was a lady behind me that said exactly the same that she started off being you know quite judgmental wanting this story to go a certain way and by the end of it she was in tears because of her own prejudice that came with it could that be deliberate and was that deliberate Oh, very much, you know, so so actually, you know, all filmmakers manipulate their audience. That's how you kind of, you know, you squeeze the best out of a story. You know, you, when you come across a story that inspires you enough to kind of devote a big chunk of your life to try to turn it into a film, um, you see potential in it. But then it's your job as a filmmaker to to take that potential and make it even greater than the sum of its parts. And that's through, that's through editing. Um, and carefully kind of restructuring and re-restructuring and repeatedly doing that. I mean, the process can go on for as long as you can possibly spare to do it. Um, and ev- with every iteration, you hopefully make it better in that respect. And once we kind of hit upon that, I think we've just worked very hard through the, the edit to, to, to finesse that and to distill it down and concentrate it in the way you've just described so that we we could really take the audience on that, that, that journey that makes you then, yeah, question all of that about your own judgment. It's, a, it's quite a powerful thing to do to an audience, that. I think one of the... Um, what Nick manages to get across brilliantly is what it's like to be in solitary confinement. I don't think the general public can understand what it's like to be confined for over two decades in your own surroundings, in the harshest possible environment you can get, because Nick was a prisoner in Pennsylvania on death row, and the conditions that go with that are just, you know, you can imagine. Yeah, you know, it's, it's literally the stuff that films are made about. He manages to get that across in ways that I don't think many people have been able to do thus far. And you touched upon it just as we were speaking before we went onto the microphones, of what that must be like for a person that goes through that, to uh, how that shapes your entire outlook. Yeah, the thing I... When I first met Nick, I was I was always quite kind of nervous about about my encounters with him, and he try, he did his best to put me at ease. But I, I must admit, at the beginning, I was pretty scared of him. The reason I was scared of him was because he's intimidating, particularly though he's a, a big man physically. Um, but because he, I was n- maybe nervous is better than scared, I suppose. And I tell you why: it was because he'd been to places that. Most of us, thank God, have never been to, been forced to go to or had to go to um, in terms of his experiences of incarceration and abuse. And, um, and solitary confinement's a form of abuse, of course. Um, and um, uh, and what, what, it st- what struck me immediately, and I think I told him this at one point, was that um, I just finished this film about the moonwalkers, these men who walked on the moon, 12 human beings in the whole history of you know, life on Earth that, that, had, that had been to this other world and then come back and were also curiously damaged by that in that they'd been and done this thing that no other human had ever done or would do again, certainly not since. And how would you, how do you, how would you reintegrate into society after that experience of walking on the moon? And it was the same with Nick. I, I, I thought, in a sense, he'd done this thing that few people have done, had that much... Uh, incarceration and solitary confinement and then come out of it but instead of 
being totally broken by it, which you would have expected him to be, you know, completely unrehabilitatable, you know, after that and unable to ever be released and to live properly into society again. You know, that, that's what you would expect from that kind of treatment. Instead, what you found with Nick straight away, whether it was on that radio uh, recording I heard of him, uh, radio programme rather, or um, meeting him then at that talk, first of all, was a man that w- wasn't on the surface of it damaged, but instead had this deep insight into this place he'd been that no one, few other human beings have been to and could communicate that so super eloquently as to connect with people, connect with almost anyone. The interesting thing about Nick's story, actually, and for those first years working on the project, I would go to as many talks as I could that he, he was doing and I'd sit and listen to how he was with audiences. And what was really interesting is almost everyone who heard his story connected with it because they saw something of their own struggle in his struggle. And he was only able to sort of portray that and draw that out of people because of his eloquence and intelligence. And and for him to have been able to preserve that through those periods of incarceration, I just was always overwhelmed by how he managed to do that. Now, I'm not saying he wasn't damaged by it. I mean, he, he struggles a lot. Um, and yet somehow he has the reserves to draw on in those public appearances to come across in that really powerful way to you know connect with people like that. And what it does is it empowers everyone who hears his story to kind of redouble their efforts to cope with their own you know difficulties and tri- trials and tribulations and and that as well in terms of making the film was something I thought was really useful to do for a film to be really um, good, I think it needs to transcend its subject matter and, and say something that's universal at the end of it, ultimately, with its message. So, yes, this film's about a man that was incarcerated and it's, to some extent, about a miscarriage of justice, but it's really about the redemptive power of love and literature, and those are themes that we all, we should all resonate, you know, with because, you know, they, they touch us all. And um, you know, so that's, uh, I think, really the power of this. Um, and that's all come from his, you know, ability to have, have survived this ordeal and come out of it as eloquently as he has. And he comes up with some brilliant quotes in it as well. Like one that straight away struck me was, it takes all day to watch the sun go down. Speaking of con- uh, of confinement. And again, unless you've been through the penal system... There's no way of being able to understand what that must be like to be in your own company, to not know when you're going to see the next new face. And also the violence that went on in prison. He saw a lot of violence, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, the thing that's hard to appreciate if you've never been in prison, which thankfully most of us haven't been, incarcerated certainly, is is that actually when you go in, it's not like you've got all the stuff you've got at home, you know, to kind of stimulate you, books and... TV and radio and the internet, of course, and, and magazines and, you know, smartphone and stuff. You don't have any of that. So, you know, in his early years in, in prison, he's, he's got very little to stimulate himself with and to keep his brain kind of active. And then, ultimately, you know, what's left? It's just this incessant sort of dragging of time that you have to sort of tolerate every day that... Um, would turn anybody crazy really and it wasn't until later in his time in prison that he kind of discovered books and and then you know went through these 
um, periods of educating himself so successfully that um, that then life became sort of more tolerable and he started to kind of change, I guess. But um, but up until then, you know, that's that's the hardest bit, I would imagine. And it goes hand in hand. I mean, the idea of this podcast is to talk about the penal system, drugs, and how they overlap. Nick had his experiences with drugs. Um, but at the same time, it's a principal point to make that just like all of our conversations around drugs, it's not about drugs. It's about life and a holistic picture that goes with it. And both in and out of prison, uh, Nick is a good example of that. He saw drug culture on both sides of the fence. Um, and I don't think we're yet at a point in society where we're having that conversation yet. And I think Nick manages to get that thing, that point across is just how imbued drug culture is, not only in with the prisoners, but also the prison guards and how that kind of comes through. But it was, it was really interesting to me reading some of the reviews. All of them are positive. And all of them, the ratings on, on Netflix are full five stars. There was one bad review that I read, and I think that it completely missed the point. And if you read the comments after it, it was a Guardian review. And it's happened to say, and it goes back to what we were saying about how polished Nick is in the way that he speaks and as a, an orator. But the Guardian uh, criticism of it was... he felt that it focused on Nick too much bizarrely which is you know quite crazy when, <laughs> when the whole film is about Nick yeah. uh, telling his own story mm. um, but myself and the, and the other commenters underneath the review were quite quite fervent in their position of no you've missed the point there that mm. that is the strength of it and the journey that you go on with Nick is the whole principal point of this film so have you encountered much in a way of, of, of negativity? You've mentioned in the past yeah. how you've been in audiences that have you've seen the reaction to how Nick tells his story. Yeah, I mean, no, the negativity was all from the industry. I mean, I think I mentioned the Channel 4's reaction to it when we first pitched it and, um, and other broadcasters who said, you know what, you know, he's too polished, we can't trust him, don't think the audience is going to either. So all, all of that came from them. And, and right the way through... That process, which is always frustrating, trying to raise money to do films, you know, um, where someone doesn't share your vision or see the um, potential for something, um, you you have to believe in it. I mean, doing any any kind of filmmaking or writing books or whatever, you have to have a huge amount of self belief that you what you see in something is eventually going to prevail as as the right decision and right choice. And so, you know, I've, I've always run my kind of career. In, in film and television is kind of the word no is just the beginning of a conversation it's never a kind of I'll have to remember the that. <laughs> end of the project you know it's just where right so how do we get around to yes eventually you know and so um, as I said before we didn't really let that sort of put us off and actually I think we, we it was proven that, that we were right in that as you say when it comes out when it's come out and the Netflix reviews and most of the other reviews when it came out in the cinema originally were all kind of positive and kind of got it. And The Guardian was the one exception. I forget the name of the um, reviewer there, the critic, but he just didn't get it, you know. And I guess this film's not for him, but you've got to move on, haven't you? You know, <laughs> well, it's, thankfully it is for plenty of other people. Was, was, is it frustrating, though? Because it was frustrating for me reading that review, having been so impacted by this film. When you've spent so much time with Nick yourself 
and you spent X amount of years producing this film. Is it frustrating to read something like that where someone just doesn't understand it? Uh, yes, I mean, it's very easy to be upset by those things. This was seven years of my life, you know, not full time, but still seven years of my life that it took up to, to you know, to stay with this through the, the, the roughest of times trying to get this film made and, and never giving up. I mean, the, the re- what drove me throughout this was that I, you know, from that first encounter with Nick um, yeah. in that church in central London, I'd made this kind of promise to him that... The man that stood before me there was a man that had been repeatedly let down by everyone in his life, you know, from his family to his friends to those that, you know, did things to him that are unspeakable and to the prison system and to the government. Everyone the man had encountered had let him down. And I was really adamant. I didn't want to just join a long line of people that were going to let him down by promising him something, promising him I'd make a documentary, this film, and then failing to do that. So... So I knew at that point that whatever happened and however hard it was going to be, I could not go, do you know what, Nick, phone him up and say, I, we, can't, we can't make this film. I've done, given it my best shot, that's the end of it. I couldn't, I couldn't do that at all. So when it wasn't working and when we weren't getting any funding to make it, I knew I just had to keep going and, and do it. And you get to the end of it and put it out there and against all the odds it's got made and it's on the screen. And then some idiot at the guardian writes watches it and and writes something where they haven't really properly engaged with it enough to get it and yeah it hurts you know because you just think well the thing is those reviews they do matter and it puts people off going to see it and you think well thanks <laughs> you know because that wasn't really helpful and it's not like this film's trying to kind of you know capitalize on something or you know it made me no money at all i never got paid a penny in making this film you know and still still all of us yet to be paid but we accepted that so we had that before the police like to go by here quite regularly so that's fine it almost fits the ambience of the podcast in its own sort of weird way well yeah for this subject maybe (laughs) as well we you know so we accepted that um that it was unlikely to make us any money that wasn't why we were doing it so we were doing it because we felt this was an important story to tell that it was a comment about society in general it was an empowering film that if you watched it you, you you and you got it you were empowered as i mentioned before to you know, do more about your own problems in your life. You know, there were every there were every good reason to encourage people to watch this. And writing a review that largely just kind of kick, kicks us in the shins over it was just. I just thought, why did he bother? What? Well, if you if you watch it and you don't get it, don't even bother reviewing it. You know, because you just a strange thing, isn't it? It's just lazy. It's such an affecting subject matter. You just think, you know, just just leave it then. Just don't write the review. So you've got to, as as the filmmaker, as one of the filmmakers, you've got to not let that get to you otherwise you wouldn't get up the next morning and do your next project that at that point only you believe in so you've got to just ignore them really and thankfully you know most of the reviews as you kindly pointed out and certainly the reviews on netflix are all you know highly complimentary and and seem to get it and understand the film and and nick you know and what we were trying to say and and that's the thing you have to take away and just anecdotally everybody that i know that's watched it are completely enamoured with it. They again, because of the journey that it takes you within yourself, uh, you, it's it's a mirror film. You know, you do see some of your own self in it. Have you had much in the way of positive, negative feedback within your own circles? Oh uh, well, you know, your friends that have lived through all this with you, that um, that have shared the pain of you know going down this journey to make um, y- you know a film that takes seven years. 
they're not going to, you know, tell you it's rubbish. So I wasn't expecting that. Although you want, you know, good friends to be honest with you. Um, and I think, you know, it, it, it's largely been received well by everybody that, you know, I've come into contact with, which um, is 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 reassuring after putting in so much of your own time into it and effort and, like I say, self-belief. You kind of want to be reassured that you've not gone mad and sort of, you know, backed something that no one else sees any potential in. But thankfully, that's not the case. You know, pe- people have connected. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. With it. Did you know much about the broad subject matters before you went into making the film? So, prison service, America, death row, are these aspects that you had any idea of? Um, well, I never worked professionally in this um, in this narrative area, I suppose. I mean, I, I joined Amnesty International. I'd been a member of Reprieve before then as well and campaigned against the death penalty. Um, and so I guess it was sort of, you know, something I cared about. I think the thing, though, when you meet, when I met Nick and when first heard about him, wasn't that you immediately go, God, this is an amazing death row story, so much as this is just an amazing story, you know, actually, and it, just the way it plays out with the themes that I've talked a bit about already that are more universal. And by the way, it, it, the backdrop of it is death row, and the backdrop is a miscarriage of justice, but actually it's about these other things. That was more important to me, I suppose. I wasn't really trying to make a death row film, here um, I, I was trying to say something else that just happened to be taking place on death row I suppose it's, I think for me the, the cliffhanger and, and the, the spoiler that we can't go too much into is the fact that he requested his own death and what picture goes with that that leads someone to that point um, it must have been a nightmare to tell that story and as you said there was lots of different cuts of the way that you addressed it um was there any cuts that you was particularly wanting to go with that or any routes that you was going to go with that didn't make it to the film well i think i mentioned already that you know we started with a chronological cut of the film that sort of um in fact would have had his 
uh, requests to, to be killed at the end. Now, the clever thing that David did in reordering it was to bring that right up to the top so that, so that we begin with him asking to die. And that, for me, was just a masterstroke, you know, because then you're immediately pulled in. Why is this man asking to die? You know, what is it he's done? What, what, ta- what possible circumstances would lead you to, to give up after all that? I think there's an Aston that comes up at the beginning where we say after, you know, whatever many years it was then, 22 years or something on death row, he requests to die after campaigning for all that time for fighting, you know, against his uh, incarceration. You know, that's a great opener. I think that came out of a lot of years in the edit, all kind of in our spare time, as it were, as I mentioned before, that we would put into it, that suddenly, I think, it's suddenly you wake up or you have a moment in the day where you think, I've got it. That's that's the thing. And I, I think for David, it was a realisation that that needed to be the beginning of the film. And then it all follows from there. So um, it just takes time. Hard bit in making a lot of documentaries these days is that, you know, you have this very tight schedule in the edit. And you've got to you go in with a kind of paper edit, as we call it, where you've kind of arranged all your story blocks on paper and pulled the the words out that you've recorded and rearranged those and um, and then you pretty much have to stick to that that's your roadmap for your film for editing your film you stick to that and you get to the end and you've assembled what was on paper and then you sit back and you watch it and you go do you know what that's not quite right it's not working it looked good on paper but actually that should be there and that should be there and we should take the end and bring it to the beginning and that kind of stuff you know now that just takes time and the more time you have to kind of hone it and experiment with story blocks, usually the better the film is. Um, and, uh, and these days, you know, for a lot of TV projects, you just don't have enough time to kind of experiment. The edit is, is really about, I mean, those that are paying you to be in there think it's about painting by numbers, you know, where's your numbers, where's your set of paints now, paint it. Whereas actually, edits are about experimenting. And we had the luxury, because we kind of, backrolled a lot of this ourselves and did it in our own time of experimenting and that's how we got to that structure did you at any point get too close to this story because i can only imagine what it was like from a viewer and knowing how it all pans out and the emotional journey and i know that's such a cliche but i'm going to go for it the emotional journey it took me on as the maker of the film that some that spent so much time in nick and the wider picture how did you feel coming out of the back of this project or, or while she was actually in there? Was it emotionally draining? Well, it was, it was draining in, during the time, particularly in those early years when, when, when we were just starting out and trying to raise the money and not getting anywhere and Nick understandably getting frustrated because, you know, he thought it was gonna, things were going to move faster. I think the thing is you can also, when you embark on making a film about someone, it, you, you become part of their life because... Uh, if you if you are ask someone if if you can make a film about them, they have to let you into their lives a bit, and they have to trust you with quite a lot of their sort of secrets and things. Also, um, you become part of their life by default because anyone who has a film made about them is touched by the filmmaker in some way. You know because they ask you questions that no one else will ask you and you have to dig deep and think about things and you come out changed from that encounter with someone interviewing you. So you become part of their life. And so quite early on, 
you know, I found that, you know, I was talking to Nick plenty of times a week and in email contact with him. And when things went were hard in his life, you know, I heard about them too. And I, where I could, I tried to help him. And there were difficulties with his book coming out at one point and problems that, that occurred in his life that I did my best to try and help him with. And so that, you know, you just accept that that's going to be part of the journey. Um, and so it was quite hard at times, all of that stuff. Um, not as hard as it was for him. So, I mean, if you look at, you know, globally, the prison population's pretty large, isn't it? And it's a, it feels sometimes a default thing that we do. This is particularly the case in America, I think. Um, and there's been a lot of other documentaries since Fear of 13 that, you know, dwell on this. Yeah, of course, we've, we've reached these epidemic kind of proportions with the prison population that suggest that we... Uh, you, you know, default to this method of punishment of um, uh, it, what well, it should be rehabilitation, but isn't. You know, too easily. And there are other avenues that society in the early 21st century should should be looking at. That there are alternatives to this that ultimately would benefit society and these individuals. You know, more. But you know, they require things that are difficult to put into place that don't um, uh, unfold fast enough during a five-year democratic sort of term in office that gives you, you know, the sort of benefits that you need to get re-elected. That's partly the problem with the system. It's hard to fix, I think. And, and Nick holds his hand up in the film that he's an addict of some description. He has an addictive personality. Um, and you hit upon rehabilitation there. One of the things that did rehabilitate him was the love of books, which we're completely surrounded by now. They're completely around us. And he found something in books uh, that he hadn't done before. Um, and The Fear of 13 gets explained within that context as well, of tridecophobia. Um, Nick is obviously an educated man. Is that self-education that did that, or is it just life? Well, when he went into prison, he, you know, he'd flunked out of school by his own admission, you know, for various reasons he wasn't able to sort of um, really connect with the education system formally that he went through in his, through his childhood. And so he, you know, he was a sort of school reject, as it was, as it was I suppose. And so his, all of his education, his eloquency of expression and uh, his love of literature all came from in prison. But it was only... As it says in the film, by a you know a, a gesture of kindness by one prison guard after a long time of, of incarceration that introduced him to books, and at first these were kind of alien objects to him. You know, he didn't really he was somewhat illiterate, found it hard to read, and uh, and so all of that education all came from prison. You know, and um, but that was self motivated. He sort of. He had to go on his own journey in there, as he describes it, to reach a point where um, he was receptive to that kind of thing and could has the, had the stamina to, to, to self-educate himself. And then there was no stopping him. I mean, what's extraordinary is how many books he reads then in the space of the next few years and, you know, and both fiction and non-fiction and, you know, the stuff he learns and leg the legal process that he kind of immerses himself in so he can get other other prisoners off death row by fighting for their rights and it's, it's, mag it's a magnificent story that. So Chris I, I personally would recommend everybody watch this film um, and I've got no vested interest in, in this other than the fact I just thought it was a genuinely brilliant film that 
honestly did change a part of me and everybody that has watched it since uh, that I've recommended it to have also said the same. Can I just ask you a question? You, yeah. you mentioned it changed a part of you. Which What, what was it in you that changed? Judgment. I, I watched Nick's story to start with um, thinking he was a certain person and by the end of it I came out realising I'd made a judgement and that that was on me and in the realm that I work in I'm the first person to say don't judge people by you know what their trappings, their hangings and everything that comes with it and yet I found myself exactly doing the same by the way that Nick was telling the story um, and I felt quite ashamed of that. And I think that's what I took away from it is a, another massive reminder to myself to to let all the other aspects of someone's life drop by the wayside and actually focus on who they actually are. Mm, good. Well, thanks for saying that. I'm pleased to hear it. So would you, would you obviously you would, but would you recommend everybody watch this film? <laughs> well, <laughs> it goes without saying, I suppose. You've worked on it for seven years. You hope someone will give you a, an hour and a half of their time to see what, what came out of that. So, yes, of course. Well, thanks so much for joining us here. It's surrounded by books, uh, which I can only think that Nick would love. So thanks a lot, Chris, for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for your time. Right. Now you've heard the episode, go and watch the film. You won't regret it. I'm going to wait here until you do. Load up Netflix. Yeah? Good. And while you're doing that, I'm going to do a quick thank yous. Thank you so much, Chris, for Riley for giving up your time on the episode. Thank you so much to the two Johns, John Cross at Lit UK Social Media and John Harris at Distraction Pieces Network Social Media. And you need to find us, don't you? So you find us at UK Leap on Twitter, at UK Leap on Instagram, UKLeap.org on Facebook and our website, UKLeap.org. Thank you to Nick and Tristan, the producers, for everything you do. And thank you to the listeners. Thank you so much for making us award-winning and giving us loads of good numbers and don't forget you can suggest guests to us as well. If there's someone you want to hear or a topic you want us to address, make sure you get involved in that as well. And, of course, thank you to all the Distraction Pieces Network guys, Scroobius Pip. Um, thank you for having us on your network and giving us a big load of exposure. Let's do something about the way that we talk about prisons, drugs. Let's just have these conversations and make sure that we uh, iron it all out, yeah? So thanks so much. Join us again next one. Bye. Behind your barricade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.